Good morning, good morning. So today we're gonna to talk about chaos. <laughs> we're gonna talk about the good news that um, chaos in our lives is real. Yes, that is good news, but we do not need to be afraid. In our Old Testament story, Joseph is 17 years old. He's younger than his other brothers in the story. Now we find out later he has another younger brother, Benjamin, but this story doesn't tell us that. And he's out with his brothers tending sheep. He's probably like an assistant to them. He's not really a full shepherd. He's kind of assisting and helping them with this. And Joseph is the young one, but he's favored by his father. He's his father's favorite. And he has what they call an ornate robe or a technicolor dream coat, if you prefer. But it's an indication of the father's favor. The father sees him as his favorite. Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin, are the sons of Rachel, which is Jacob's beloved wife. And that may be the reason for Jacob's favoritism with them. But if you've been following along, you'll notice God's promise tends to mess things up. It upends things. It messes with the system over and over again. So we've seen several times now in these stories of the patriarchs how it upends this principle of primogeniture, which is a really fancy big word for the older child is favored. (laughs) But whenever God's promise speaks, it messes with that whole system. It turns it upside down. And it often happens in really messy ways. Like the Bible's not a clean cut, neat story. It's messy. It messes with things. And then we see people's lives are not always perfect and pristine. Far from it. But the upending, of, the upending promise of God is a reminder that God's people don't rest on their own cultural or biological privilege, but on God alone. Remember that Jacob, too, upset the status quo. So J- Joseph's father, Jacob, he wrecked the primogeniture in his own family. So he was the younger son, but he was the favorite child of his parent, his mother. And remember, he kind of stole the birthright and he stole that whole thing, the blessing. Because of the father's favoritism, Jacob's favoritism, Joseph's brothers hate him in this story. This is another example of God's faithfulness in the midst of complicated and messy family systems. One thing I have learned in many years of ministry is that family is messy. Always, really, on some level. There's always complications with family, codependencies, broken relationships. Now, of course, that's not the dream, but it is often the context of the dream, the context in which God works. And the good news of these stories is your messy family circumstance does not rule out God's activity. He's right there with you. Now, there's some things from this story that are messy, that we would not recommend, okay? So we would discourage, rightly, we would discourage parents from ever favoring one of their children by dramatic gestures, okay? Not helpful. Before Betty was born, I picked up a bad habit. I would tell Lucy, I love you. You are my favorite. Of course, I had good intentions with that, but now that there's another one, I've continued to say that accidentally. So Lucy, I love you. You're my favorite. And more than on one occasion, she said, pointed at Betty and said, dude, (laughs) I got to learn different language. Betty, of course, is also my favorite. They're both my favorite. I'm not comparing. I'm just overcome with love for each of them. And so that's the expression. I'm learning better language. 
So we would discourage parents from doing that kind of dramatic gesture, giving one kid an ornate robe, uh, saying that they're your, their favorite. In the same way, we would rightly discourage a 17-year-old younger brother from telling his brother's dreams about them bowing down to him. We would rightly discourage that. Fine, you had dreams about your older brothers bowing down to you. Maybe there's something to that. Tell your therapist. Don't tell them. Yes, the patriarchs are a dysfunctional family, and it goes generations back. But this is not a reason to be ashamed of these stories. When we hear these stories, we shouldn't look at them with shame and go, yeah, the Bible, man, these families are really messed up. We shouldn't really put any stock in this. No, it's in the midst of such diseased and frayed relationships that God gives a promise, and he's faithful to the promise. The context of, or the content of Joseph's dreams are not included in our readings, but really quickly, in the first dream, Joseph and his brothers are binding sheaves of grain. Joseph's sheave stands upright while the other sheaves of the other brothers bow down to it. This is obviously a dream about power, and we see from verse 8 that the other brothers get that. They understand this is a dream about power. And then in the second dream, the sun and moon and 11 stars are bowing down to Jacob. This time, even dad, even the father recognizes there's some strong implications here. And so he rebukes uh, Joseph for this. Now, God is not specifically mentioned anywhere in this reading. I don't know if you noticed that. It's the dream that points a sign to God's upending activity. The brothers see the dream as a threat. And so what they do is they seek to remove the threat. Okay, this dream is different than what we've experienced. It's threatening to us. We got to get rid of it. Yes, the dream is good news. The dream is a promise. But good news and the promise are often received as a threat. When we talk about dream language, we can't help but think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who declared a God-given dream that was received as too radical, too upending. Some of those who wanted to squash the dream killed the dreamer. The brothers are steeped in their hatred. So they plot to kill Joseph, but somehow they're able to restrain themselves at the last minute. Verse 19 states the theme of this scene. They say, here comes that dreamer. Or it might be better translated, here comes that dream master. And it's said sarcastically. So the initial threat conveys the depth of violence in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. They're thinking, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. So this is really gruesome. It's gross. But also in the ancient world, to deny a person a proper burial was considered the ultimate slap in the face. So this is an ultimate sign of hatred and of disrespect. The brothers are comfortable with the status quo. Or at least they prefer the situation they know from the situation they do not know as described in the dreams. And they will do anything to keep things the way that they are. In fact, it looks like their anger probably had time to simmer because they're not, they are not at the point that they believe themselves to have, they're now at the point where they have no other options. They believe there's nothing else we can do other than get rid of Jacob, Joseph. Two of the brothers stopped the murderous plan. Reuben does so by deceiving his brothers. So he's fine with this idea of throwing Joseph in the pit. But the difference, he says, is that we should do so without killing him. 
which I guess is nice. We're told that Reuben's intention is to rescue Joseph, return him to their father, which, spoiler alert, that plan fails. Indications are that Reuben is ready to save Joseph, but he's afraid of the wrath of the other brothers. Maybe their anger towards Joseph will turn against him. So when Joseph arrives on the scene, the brothers strip him of his special robe, his ornate robe, the symbol of his favor, and they fling him in the empty cistern. Christians can't help but think of Jesus, God's dream in the flesh, stripped of his robe and beaten. God's dream enters the chaos of our world and is violently rejected. As the brothers sit down to eat, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites, they're semi-nomadic traders whose homeland was east of Jordan. And another brother, Judah, speaks up. He suggests that they don't kill Joseph, but that they sell him into slavery. So somehow Judah's conscience is pricked by murder, but not by trafficking, okay? So it's, let's not murder him, but we can sell him into slavery. The moment of Joseph's being sold into slavery is significant in the broader narrative. Joseph is on his way to Egypt, which is the setting of the Exodus story, which is the foundational event in Israel's history. The chaos rages. Joseph's slavery is just the beginning. His journey takes twists and turns. It's ups and downs as you read throughout the story. And his people will eventually find themselves in slavery. In the book of Exodus, we hear of forced bricklaying, of sons being killed, of chaotic plagues, of a Red Sea. And yet none of these will stop God's dream. None of that chaos stops God's dream for his people and for the world. And then in our gospel reading, the disciples are on a boat and chaos is raging. You've heard me probably over a dozen times talk about the importance of seas in the Bible, <laughs> the water. In the ancient world, the seas represented chaos and disorder. So in Greek mythology, Poseidon was not only the god of the sea, but also of storms and earthquakes. Poseidon was known as the earth shaker. So adherents to this ancient religion did whatever they could to appease Poseidon so that there weren't the storms that, that would stop them. So for example, if a sailor was going to sea, he would visit Poseidon's temple and pray for a safe voyage. And as he sailed away from the temple, there's still in the back of his mind, did he do enough? Or what if there was another sailor who came by and offered a sacrifice that was better in order for Poseidon to turn the wind and the waves in an opposite direction? He's always wondering, did I do enough? Maybe my incantation was off. Maybe my sacrifice was blemished, even though I tried really hard to get it right. So the sea was really scary, but it was also revered. There was a reverence for the sea. We've got to do this right so that everything's appeased and so that I don't die. Additionally, in Egyptian mythology, the Nile River was central to their civilization. And the god Hapi, was said to flood the Nile every year in order to provide fertility to the ground and provision for his people. So the ancient people saw the seas as both scary and essential to life. So they did everything that they could to try to religiously control the chaos, control the seas, knowing that they were helpless at the hands of their gods. And then the biblical story tells us 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep or of the waters. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is significant because it shows a God who is Lord over everything and not dependent on anything. God is hovering over the chaos, over the waters. He is the Lord of the waters. The Bible wants us to see from the very beginning that God existed before and above everything. And without God, nothing has intention or purpose. There's not one God of the sun and also a God of the waters and a God of the camels and a God of the beetles. No, there's one God who created everything. So nothing is outside of his created work. The one God creates out of the water. So not only is he over the waters, but the chaos doesn't govern him. He forms and shapes the chaos according to his purpose. Our God is the one who gives meaning to the chaos. We see after the children of Israel are set free from slavery in Egypt, they find themselves trapped with the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. The Red Sea is this symbol of chaos and disorder, the unknown, the other, that which is scary. And there's this opportunity for God's creative power. He delivers his people by parting the sea. In Daniel 7, the prophet sees a vision of four beasts coming out of the sea, these scary, weird-looking, freaky-looking beasts, and they represent the principalities and powers of the world, the chaos that's used to dominate the world. And then the prophet sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worships him, and all the sea monsters are defeated by this son of man and the one true God. And here in our gospel story, we see the same God who created the world, the same God who parted the sea, and now the one who hovers over the chaos as Jesus walks on the waters. The seas, the chaos, the things that don't make sense, they have an ultimate ruler. It's no coincidence then that when we come to faith, when we're baptized, to come, we come through the seas. The early Christians saw the death and resurrection of Jesus as an ultimate sea crossing of the deepest, darkest, and most chaotic sea there is, death itself. In baptism, the church has proclaimed that we participate in Christ's death and resurrection in baptism. We cross the sea. And this means that we no longer have to fear death. If we no longer fear death, if, if the sea has been crossed once and for all, then there's nothing that we could ever face that would intimidate us. When the disciples first see Jesus, they're afraid. They think he's a ghost. But Jesus' first words to them are, take courage, it is I do not be afraid. I think like the disciples, fear so often paralyzes us too. When we find ourselves in, midst of, in the midst of chaos, we're often paralyzed by fear. Of course, there's such a thing as a necessary fear. We're thankful for our fight or flight response, that when we get in a scary situation, we get an accelerated heart rate. 
uh, shallow breath, dizziness, increase in, ad in adrenaline, sweating, other symptoms. Human beings have always needed this. So if there's a saber-toothed tiger right behind us, our heart rate better increase, right? We need to get nervous. We need to get ready. But in our world today, sometimes our fight-or-flight response kicks in at the wrong times with everyday stuff or things. Jesus is so overwhelming, of course. He's God. He's greater than we can imagine. And that's awe-inspiring and sobering. But Jesus says we do not need to be afraid. In his presence is peace, is love, which is greater than fear. Peter wants to know Jesus. He takes a step of faith. He wants to be close to him. He wants to experience this new world and this new creation. So he says, if it's you, tell me to step out of the boat. Jesus says, come. After Peter starts walking, he begins to sink. Why? Well, part of it is because water Human beings don't stand on water. <laughs> but in this context of this story, it's, he finds himself, and we often find ourselves, wondering if Jesus is too good to be true. We lose faith in new creation. The logic and rule of the kingdom of God are not the logic and rules of this world. And the laws and rules of this world are just so much more obvious and easy. So the reading says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He looked at the chaos and he began to think he didn't have what it takes to handle the wind. Peter falls back on the laws and logic of this world. Jesus is trying to get Peter to understand that he's doing something different from what he would expect. He's playing by a different set of rules, but the chaos is too strong for Peter. The wind and the waves are roaring, but God is calling Peter into another world and to bring that world into this world. This new world is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And those who follow him are called to live by the logic and rules of a new world. Okay, but what the heck does that mean? So are we supposed to walk on water? Is that, that what we're saying? Well, the truth is that many of the things which Christians are called to often feel like they are as difficult as walking on water. Give of what you have to the poor does not make sense in a world of scarcity. Love your enemies does not make any sense in a world of polarization. Welcoming the prodigal does not make sense in a world of grudges. Turning the other cheek doesn't make a lick of sense in a world of revenge. In the midst of all that doesn't make sense, we are simply called to follow and trust the true Lord, Jesus himself. And the end of the gospel reading is a microcosm of our future hope as Christians. Immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and catches Peter as he's begun to sink. He says, you of little faith, which is not an accusation, it's an observation. You have little faith. Jesus says, why did you doubt? Jesus doesn't let Peter drown in his doubt. He caught him. Our God is the one who rescues. He doesn't give up on us even when we fail to trust him. And then the, disciple, the disciples climb in a boat and the wind died down. Then those who are in the boat worship him saying, truly you are the son of God. As Christians, we believe that there will come a day when the wind will cease, when wrongs will be made right, 
when all that is purposeless will find purpose, when evil will be no more. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's always ruled the chaos. The wind has never been the frightening thing it claimed to be, and all will be made new. So what are you facing today that can feel overwhelming, daunting? Maybe it's a sense of feeling trapped at your job, behavior challenges with your kids, overwhelming debt, a child who has moved far away, anxiety that keeps resurfacing, a chronic health issue that just will not go away, shame that we feel from a mistake that we've made or something more fundamental about who we are? What about on a broader scale? We see these fires now in Hawaii and Canada, the rising temperatures, the climate change that just feels so much more present. In times like these, I think a story like this, the calming of the winds and waves, feels way more real. I could list a bunch of different fears that we all have, <laughs> but I think you know them already. I don't think you need me to just tick them off. The good news of promise is that God has given a dream, and nothing can stop that. The good news of salvation, as we hear in our epistle reading, is you don't have to be put to shame. You are not put to shame. The good news of the kingdom is you don't have to be afraid. Joseph's slavery didn't stop or suppress God's dream. The wind and the waves do not stop the kingdom of God. I think when, when we encounter chaos in our lives, there's a couple different ways we tend to respond. Sometimes we dismiss the storms. Okay. Sometimes we just say they're just not real or I can just transcend them. You know, Don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't even need to really talk about this or tell anybody about this because it's not really real. We think that that's the best solution, but we find out long term, it just doesn't work. Denial in that way is not helpful. So other times we're paralyzed by fear. We're unable to see a way forward. And so we just freak out. And in times like this, we turn to unhealthy coping me mechanisms. They promise a lot, but they deliver so little. So we turn to substances that numb pain. We turn to unhealthy relationships or to overspending. Or we turn to other behaviors that may give us a sense of we're in control because this is a vision of the good life. This is the way to have a good life in the world. So overspending, again, <laughs> diving deep into unhealthy forms of political radicalism. This is a way of giving in to the waves crashing over us, which is not the way forward. Sometimes we dismiss the waves. Sometimes we're paralyzed by them. But both are a desire for some sort of control. If I pretend it's not there, I can still control it. If I give up and seek a different way, I can turn to other things and at least be in some sort of control of how I feel about it. But notice both of those things start with I. Both are forms of control. They're both ways of saying, I can fix this. I can do whatever I can to make this right. Our God is not deterred by our circumstances, no matter how difficult they are. And our God is not deterred by our lack of faith. He's not a God who needs to be appeased like Poseidon in order to love us or to work for our good. His posture is always love. And in the midst of our dismissal, 
in the midst of our grasping for control, in the midst of our coping mechanisms, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I hope we hear that today. The end of this gospel reading, Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And he does not let Peter drown in his doubt. He catches him and he catches us. Amen.